what were your thoughts when you looked at the sadistic nature of the crime? Fire itself isn't really used to commit murder. It's used to cover up murder. Someone said, if I burn this and if I can get rid of evidence, I might get away with what just happened. The coroner was able to determine that the cause of death was ligature strangulation. How difficult was it for you to make that call to the family members? It's always sad. There's never a good way to do it. When you lose someone and you never have the ability to say goodbye, it almost destroyed me completely. The fire didn't destroy everything. We could see the logo's Ozark camp fuel. That was a good clue. We had a lot of momentum, and at this point, it was very critical to try to piece this together. Tell me what you were feeling. Every successful investigation has that point when it turns. You go, ah, oh, bingo. We got him. Hi, I'm Paula Zahn, and tonight we're on the case in Reno, Nevada. The city filled with glittering casinos and tourist attractions became the backdrop for a disturbing murder after a body was found in the smoldering debris of a suspicious fire. The investigation into the crime would force law enforcement to sift through the ashes, hoping to find a clue that would lead them to a cold-blooded killer. It was just before 9 p.m. on July 4th, 1999. As fireworks erupted across the night sky in Reno, a security guard at a construction site noticed a man struggling to load what appeared to be a large garbage bag into a dumpster in a neighboring parking lot. He observed a white male trying to lift something kind of long into the dumpster, and he's having difficulty lifting it up. Seconds later, the guard heard tires squealing as the man's truck peeled out of the parking lot. And then his eyes were drawn to something more troubling. He saw smoke coming from the area of the dumpster, notified the fire department. When firefighters arrived, they were able to quickly put out the blaze. But they were stunned by what they found in the smoldering debris. When they put out the fire, they realized that there was a deceased human being at the center of that fire. The firemen sealed off the area and immediately contacted the Reno Police Department. Homicide detectives Mike Wan and Jim Duncan were dispatched to investigate. How would you describe the scene as you drove up to it? It's a corporate business park where this was. A huge commercial dumpster was sitting by itself. 
Next to the side of that was a big barn area. At the time, this was a vacant parking lot. The victim was on the ground next to the dumpster. A closer look revealed more disturbing clues. Given the severity of the fire, could you even tell if the victim was a man or a woman? Yes, we could tell it was a female. The fire didn't completely burn some clothing, so we could tell there was a bra. It appeared the victim had been wrapped in a bedsheet with a large letter Q on it, and then stuffed into a blue sleeping bag before the fire had been set. Parts of a sleeping bag are around her. Her upper chest was exposed. We could see a little bit of rope near one thigh. The rest is wrapped around her neck a couple of times. Based on the evidence, detectives theorized the fire had been set to destroy evidence of a homicide. Fire itself isn't really used to commit murder. It's used to cover up murder. It's what we call a body dump. What were your thoughts when you looked at the sadistic nature of the crime? I think that someone said, if I burn this and if I can get rid of evidence, I might get away with what just happened. Investigators believe that the perpetrator hoped that holiday festivities and the deserted location he had chosen would delay the discovery of the fire until it was too late. It's 4th of July in Reno. It's 9.30 at night. The fireworks that the city puts on draws the huge crowds, and so this is a good time to be there as far as him being seen by anyone else. Was it your impression that the killer probably thought all the evidence would be destroyed? I think so. I think this individual thought that that would take care of everything that needed to be done to make sure they could get away with this crime. But that plan was foiled by how quickly the fire had been detected and put out. After the body was removed, those working on the case discovered more evidence, including how the fire had been started. Did you see any clues at the scene that you thought might advance the investigation? We did. The fire didn't destroy everything that he had, had intended it to. He'd used accelerant, flammable fluids, and we could see the logo's Ozark camp fuel on one of the cans, and that was a good clue. Police also had an eyewitness, the security guard who had reported the fire. Although he had been at least 100 yards away, he had seen the suspect. Could he see his face? Not enough for him to give any real description. He could see that it was a white male, somewhere around six foot. But the witness remembered critical details about the suspect's truck. What was the description he gave of the truck the man was driving that night? He was very specific. He said it was a red Dodge Ram pickup truck. And I wondered, why are you so sure it's a Dodge Ram? 
The security guard's answer helped convince investigators he was right. He himself had been saving money to buy a Dodge Ram pickup. Were you ever able to find any evidence that supported his description of the truck? We had actually acceleration marks where you left rubber, like burnout marks. Impressions of tires that would be consistent with a truck. As police continue to sift through the evidence that might help them catch a vicious killer, they were still deeply troubled by the lack of a single clue that would identify the young female victim. Detectives in Reno, Nevada were investigating a grisly mystery. Who was the vicious killer that had set the body of a young woman on fire to cover up his crime? An eyewitness reported seeing a white male in a red pickup truck speeding away from the crime scene. And police discovered that the perpetrator had also left another clue behind, evidence of the unusual accelerant he used to start the blaze. While the body of the unidentified victim was taken to the medical examiner for autopsy, detectives focused on the evidence that had been found at the scene. In particular, the two cans of accelerant labeled Ozark Camp Fuel. Was that a brand you were familiar with? The brand was something that was very unusual to me. Did you think at the time, because it was unusual, that that might be a valuable clue? We had nothing else. Detectives fanned out to canvas the area, searching for a store that carried Ozark camp fuel. What did you think the chances were that you would actually be able to find out where that camping fuel was bought? Well, initially, not good. So you thought it was a shot in the dark? Oh, yeah. One of the first stores police visited was a Walmart just four miles away. It was the closest store next to that area, so that's where we directed officers to go over there and, and just see if they sell that type of fuel. And their diligence quickly paid off. One of them discovered that that was, in fact, an exclusive Walmart brand that they sold there. You can only buy it through Walmart brand stores. Just hours into the investigation, detectives had their first big break. We were very tenacious. We were persistent. We had a lot of momentum. And at this point, it was very critical to try to piece this together. Detective Juan raced to the Walmart, looking for proof that the killer had made his purchase at that branch. You ended up going to Walmart to investigate this lead. What did you find out? The computers turn over at midnight. We couldn't get the records for all the sales until the next morning. But instead of waiting until morning, 
The store manager offered to help the detectives search the records from each register by hand. Were you surprised that the manager of the Walmart was willing to do what he ended up doing with you, which is manually going through every receipt over the last, what, 48 hours? Yeah, that individual stayed throughout the night with me looking at these receipts from registers to help us connect that purchase there or eliminate it and give us time to move somewhere else. Once again, a painstaking effort paid dividends. The manager found a receipt for a purchase made at 727 on the night of the fire. What was your reaction when you were handed a receipt that itemized the purchase of two cans of Ozark fuel? I thought, we got it. This is where this was purchased. And any doubt the detective had was removed when he studied the receipt. It listed not only the two cans of Ozark camp fuel, but a blue sleeping bag as well. All the same items we found on the crime scene, the cans and the sleeping bag were purchased right here at this store hours before we found the body. Incredible. Unfortunately, the receipt showed that the customer had paid for the items in cash. So police weren't able to find out the name of their suspect. But Detective Juan hoped that a review of the store's security cameras might provide him with the face of the man they were looking for. We were just looking for a picture of somebody coming out with a sleeping bag. Thanks to the 7.27 p.m. stamp on the receipt, police knew the time frame of where to start the search. But would it lead them to the videotape they needed to identify a killer? police had just been called to the scene of a fire that appeared to have been intentionally set to cover up a vicious homicide. Although authorities had not yet identified the victim, they already had several critical leads on a suspect. An eyewitness had given detectives a detailed description of his truck. Then, investigators also learned that the unique accelerant that started the blaze had been bought at a Walmart just a few miles away. Detective Mike Wan had already discovered a receipt that documented exactly when the man who set the fire had purchased his supplies. And now he hoped the store's surveillance cameras could help him identify the suspect. Did you have much faith that you would actually see an image of a possible killer on it? Once we knew we had the receipt, I knew we'd find him. And they did. The first images Walmart found had been shot from a camera directly above the register. What were your thoughts when you were shown a freeze frame from the store surveillance tape? It wasn't the best picture because of the way he was looking down, and it's almost like he was avoiding the cameras. 
you're able to see the top of his head and part of his clothing while he's making the purchase of the items. Although the video didn't show the suspect's face, Detective Juan believed that he had seen enough details to identify the man on the store's other cameras. The exhaustive effort paid off. Detective Juan was able to get pictures of him walking into the store before the purchase. An identifiable picture. If you saw him, you'd know it. The image was of a white male about six feet tall with receding brown hair. He was wearing a black shirt, blue jeans, and boots. What was your reaction when you saw the still of the man you believed to be the killer walking into the store? The feeling was fantastic. You don't get this within a day very often. We had a good start. Were you shocked that whatever this man's involvement was in the murder, that he made no attempt to disguise himself? I guess you can look at it two ways. He's either extremely stupid or brazen, which good for me, uh, bad for him. Police now had a clear picture of the man who set the fire but they still had no leads on his unidentified victim. Then, Deputy Wade Doherty heard about the gruesome crime on his police radio. He immediately wondered if it might be connected to the missing persons case he was working on. I did a little investigation and then things started kind of rolling down the hill from there. Early that morning, Doherty had taken a missing persons report from an emotional Kathy Smith, the mother of 20-year-old Jenny Testa. I met with Jenny Testa's mother. She was really upset, really distraught. She wanted her daughter found. She hadn't come home the night before, and she wanted me to find her. Deputy Doherty contacted Detective Jim Duncan with an unusual question. He wanted to know if the victim found in the fire had a unique tattoo. Doherty was stunned when Duncan described the one he had seen. It was the tattoo that I had written on my report. And I knew that it was her. Once you saw those tattoos that were described in the missing persons report on the body at autopsy, were you fairly confident this was Jenny Testa? I was because there's a specific tattoo on the ankle. The seasoned investigator now had the gut-wrenching task of asking Jenny's mother to come to the medical examiner's office to review evidence. How difficult was it for you to make that call? It's always sad. I've done it, unfortunately, several times. It's, there's never, there's never a good way to do it.
police had several close-up photos of the victim's tattoo and a necklace they had found to show to Kathy at the heartbreaking meeting. Such a delicate situation, you're fearing the worst. Just describe what happened next. I was sitting in that room and it was a photocopy of her necklace. They pushed it over to the table and I looked at it and I went, that's Jenny's necklace. Then Kathy realized the enormity of her own words. I turned around and I just stared out the window because I'm like trying to process that this was Jenny. DNA testing later confirmed the devastating truth. The unidentified victim was, in fact, 20-year-old Jenny Testa. As investigators watched the grief-stricken mother break down, they made their own silent vow to do whatever it took to bring the young woman's killer to justice. Police had just identified the victim they found in a fire as 20-year-old Jenny Testa. The young woman had been reported missing less than a day before the gruesome discovery. As officers continued to search for the man who had set the blaze, Jenny's family was still trying to come to terms with the heartbreaking tragedy. For Kathy Smith, the loss of her oldest daughter was a staggering blow. The young girl she had raised was just beginning to spread her wings. How would you describe Jenny? She was extremely bright. She was really into art and literature. She was so capable of understanding people and emotions. Jenny was friends with everyone. She was light years ahead in her emotional ability. She was a spirit, a soul, someone that was kind, that gave. You relied on her a lot, didn't you? I did. Jenny developed an internal and an external strength, and she was very, very devoted to me. Her sister said, Mom, I know losing Jenny was so difficult. Not only did you lose a child, you lost your best friend. And it's really true. At the time of her death, Jenny was working two jobs and had plans to follow her biggest dream, to see the world. What was on the horizon for her? She wanted to see and experience so much of people, of places. And one day she just came home and said, Mom, I'm going to enlist in the Navy. And I was so surprised and so thrilled for her. But then, just six weeks before she was scheduled to leave for boot camp, Jenny was murdered. Kathy told police what she knew about her daughter's final hours alive. When was the last time you saw her? She worked the night shift at Kinko's and she was due home the next morning and she never came home. And I knew something was horribly wrong. 
because Jenny would not come home and not call me. Could you think of any place she might have gone? No. I got home about 2.30 in the afternoon and still no Jenny. And then I started calling Kinko's. She was due back to work at Kinko's at 10 p.m. And they said no, they hadn't seen her. Kathy then called the Washoe County Sheriff's Office to report her oldest daughter missing. Even then, she was bracing herself for the worst. I knew there was no other explanation for why she was missing. Absolutely none. While she prayed for her daughter's safe return that night, Kathy can remember hearing the sirens of emergency workers racing across the city. It was the night of the 4th of July. I stood out on my deck, I looked out, and I actually saw fire trucks responding to a fire. After police gave Kathy the gruesome details of how her daughter had been discovered, she made a horrifying connection. The fire trucks she heard on the 4th of July were actually on their way to find Jenny. Kathy was still in shock when detectives asked her if she could review images of their prime suspect. They escorted me into a little video room, and they turned this video on, and they ran it back and forth, and the guys are going, do you know who this is? What were you actually looking at? Was inside what turned out to be Walmart. Kathy didn't recognize the man entering the store that evening. But she gave officers access to her daughter's room so they could gather other pictures that might advance the investigation. Kathy also provided detectives with a different kind of clue, one that had come from a friend of Jenny's. He called me and he said, I just want you to know, I think I just saw Jenny's car parked at the bank parking lot. Investigators had the car processed hoping that her blue Ford might contain a link between Jenny and the man in the Walmart video. Where was Jenny's car found in relationship to where she worked? Probably halfway between where she worked and where she lived, on a very busy street. We thought we would find some type of struggle or evidence from someone else that was in her car that might lead us to a potential suspect but there was nothing there. Why did you think Jenny's car ended up in that parking lot? Could you come up with any explanation? We, we couldn't. The evidence leads us to believe that she parked her car willingly. An investigation that had been moving at an incredible speed suddenly appeared to be in danger of grinding to a halt. What did you really have at that point? We have a deceased, hard-working girl who obviously wasn't killed where we found her. Her body was dumped there. We certainly have a fairly good photo of somebody involved, and we have a description of their truck. But how had Jenny crossed paths with her killer? 
detectives still believed he had to have been someone she knew. With her close friends and family crossed off the list, investigators turned to the next most likely possibility. According to Kathy, she'd been working two jobs, one at Kinko's Copiers and one at Franktown Car Wash. So the first order was flood those places, talk to all the employees. Would one of the visits reveal the missing piece of the puzzle? Police in Reno, Nevada were rapidly piecing together the evidence from a disturbing crime. It appeared that 20-year-old Jenny Testa had been murdered and her killer had tried to cover up his tracks by burning her body. Investigators had recovered videotape of the suspect as he left a Walmart with the supplies he used to set the fire. But would those images be the key to identifying him? Police wanted to talk with everyone who had seen Jenny Testa during her last hours alive. And an investigator who went to the Kinko store where she worked made a critical discovery before he even got inside. As Detective Jim Colbert was about to enter the store, he noticed a full-size red Dodge pickup parts in the Kinko's parking lot. The red pickup appeared to match the description of the one an eyewitness had seen fleeing the fire. He went inside the store, learned from the manager that this truck was one of his employees. When the manager casually pointed out Jonathan Lloyd, the young man who owned the truck, the detective was stunned. Jim also had a picture of this mystery person from Walmart. And as he's taking a look at this picture and he got a glimpse of Jonathan, he realized there was a striking resemblance. The investigator raced back to the station to share the new lead with Detectives Juan and Duncan. He came back and asked me, did you ever hear of John Lloyd? Had you heard of him? No, not at all. And he said, well, he's an employee at Kinko's, and he's got a red truck. That got us fired up. Detective Duncan immediately ran Jonathan Lloyd's name through the county criminal database. He was stunned when one of Lloyd's mugshots popped up on his screen. All of their booking photographs are available to us through that computer. As soon as this picture popped up, I knew. I mean, <laughs> I get I get chills telling you that, but you see it and you go, ah, oh, bingo, we got him, you know. I knew 100% it was him, it looked just like him. When you described seeing the booking photo, emotions washed across your face. Tell me what you were feeling. Well, every successful investigation has that point when it turns, and every homicide detective knows it. When it clicks, it's a great feeling.
Detective Duncan grabbed his partner and drove to the Kinko store to keep a careful eye on their prime suspect, Jonathan Lloyd. What kind of strategy did you map out as you planned your approach to John Lloyd? At this point, we don't have enough to arrest him for murder, so we want to be on top of him every second. So we started surveillance of Kinko's in his truck and him immediately. The whole point is to do a low-key contact with him. The detectives waited until Lloyd finished his shift and then tailed his red pickup as it left the Kinko's parking lot. Where did he go after he left work? He went to his parents' house in South Reno, not far from where Jenny lived with her mother. It's an affluent neighborhood. The investigators knocked on the front door with a plan to approach Lloyd without tipping their hand. I said we were investigating the death of a, an employee at Kinko's. Was he cooperative? He was, extremely cooperative. The detectives asked Lloyd if he could come to the station to answer some more questions. He agreed to and followed them in his red pickup truck. When Lloyd entered the interrogation room, he still had no idea he was the prime suspect in the murder of Jenny Testa. How'd you start? I said, tell us what you know about Jenny and your work. And he said, her shifts kind of overlap mine. We do get smoke breaks. And she started coming out with me when she had found out that I was formerly in the Navy. According to him, that's all he knew about her. And that was their only connection. Investigators played along with Lloyd, allowing him to grow more confident in his lies. They asked him to review photos of men Jenny knew to see if any of them had been at Kinko's. After Lloyd claimed that none of the men had been in the store that day, the detective slid a final photo across the desk. It was his surveillance photo of him walking into Walmart. I said, he looks really familiar to me, John. I'm pretty sure I know exactly who that is. Jonathan Lloyd stared at the photo realizing he was cornered. He knew it was him, so he gave it up and said, yeah, that's me. Describe to me what his face looked like when he saw the image of himself going into Walmart. It was a turning point. There was a pause, like, now what am I going to do? Detectives hoped that Lloyd was about to confess to murdering Jenny. But instead, he tried to convince investigators that Jenny had actually been killed during a drug deal gone wrong. What was the story he wanted you to believe? He had an arranged place to meet and, and pick up Jenny so they could go buy some drugs. Lloyd said he drove Jenny to the home of a drug dealer in his truck. What did he say happened once inside? Jenny went in the back room with two of them. There was an argument, and at that point, he heard some wrestling going on. Lloyd claimed seconds later, the drug dealers ran from the back room and out of the house. He said when he found Jenny, she was dead. Did he say how he thought she had died? He said he didn't know. He went in there to help her, 
and was too late. She was already deceased. Detectives didn't believe a word Lloyd had told them, but they remained focused on locking him into a story and its unusual details. What caught my attention is when he was describing the room, the doorway wasn't a regular door. It was like a cloth curtain. Police asked Lloyd what he did after he found Jenny dead. Most people would call a police or an ambulance or something. He says he takes her body and puts it in a truck and he drives off. Lloyd said he panicked and decided to burn Jenny's body. When Lloyd finished the twisted tale, Detective Duncan made it clear that he was certain that Lloyd's entire account had been a bold-faced lie. I started clapping when it was over. I said, John, you should get an Academy Award. And it didn't take long for him to say, well, maybe I should have an attorney. At the end of the interview, detectives placed Jonathan Lloyd under arrest for the murder of Jenny Testa. Her mother, Kathy, was grateful for the amazing work police had done. The detectives from the Reno Police Department, I can't even begin to describe the commitment that they had and the sensitivity to me and the commitment that they felt for an innocent victim. After Lloyd was behind bars, detectives quickly uncovered evidence that might have been connected to the crime. A search of Lloyd's pickup truck revealed a pair of handcuffs and a stun gun. And then a visit to the home of his girlfriend helped seal the case against him. We knew we wanted to go talk to the girlfriend. So as Jim and I were walking in the kitchen area, my attention is the room to the right. There was a cloth curtain type thing. The detective suddenly wondered if Lloyd's story about how Jenny had died might have actually contained a shred of the truth. His description of the room where the murder happened appeared to be a match to the bedroom at his girlfriend's house. How critical was the evidence you found in her apartment? There's obviously a struggle. We've got blood all over the bedroom. And there was more. Investigators found evidence connected to the location where Jenny's body was discovered. Jenny's been wrapped inside a bed sheet. On one corner of the sheet was the letter Q. Under the bed, there was also a bloody sheet wadded up, which also had a Q in the corner. Testing revealed that the blood found on the sheet was Jenny's. Police also discovered her sunglasses in the apartment. Based on the new evidence, investigators formulated a theory of how the savage attack unfolded. What do you really think happened that morning? 
I think she voluntarily met him and willingly got in the car with him. I think he'd use their points in common about the military. I think Jenny's purpose for going along was to learn more about the Navy. But Lloyd's plan was to have a sexual encounter with Jenny, and he was prepared to have one against her will. I think he tried something, and she wouldn't go for it and turned violent. When Lloyd was confronted with the overwhelming evidence police had collected, he agreed to plead guilty to Jenny's murder. In September of 2000, he was sentenced to two life terms. And while Lloyd will spend the rest of his life behind bars, there is nothing the justice system can do to ease the pain of Jenny's family. I know this affected every aspect of your life. What did Lloyd take away from you and your family? When you lose someone and you never have the ability to say goodbye, it destroys a person and everything around you. It almost destroyed me. And if it hadn't been for my devotion to making sure Jenny was never forgotten, I don't know that I'd still be here today. Kathy holds on tightly to the treasures she has left. One of them is a poem Jenny wrote. She discovered it after her daughter's death and it now brings her solace every time she reads it. I'm walking along a tilted edge. I don't want to fall. Outstretched arms are comforting me. Don't worry, everything will be all right. I look into the eyes of love and trust. I see a place to call home. And I almost felt like it was her way to say, Mom, okay, I'm in a good place. Jenny's mother spread her daughter's ashes along her favorite Lake Tahoe beach. Kathy visits there at sunrise. It's one of the many ways she honors Jenny. I'm Paula Zahn. Please join us again next time when we're back on The Case.